Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. It would be, I often thought, arrogant to think that any particular problem that we confronted was so unique that there weren't lessons to be drawn with how presidents and White House staffs had handled wouldn't have some sort of guidepost. I didn't let myself get in the way of the decision, but I rather used my roles to frame and shape the decision so that it was clear, crisp. What you see is what you get about President Obama. Tensions, I don't... I'm not afraid of tension. I've seen that. (laughs) (laughs) This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of thecypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders who talk candidly about what they've seen and what they think it means for global security. As a former CIA analyst, Morell is uniquely skilled at asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. How does somebody go from a young congressional staffer and after only 17 short years become the White House Chief of Staff. We'll learn today on Intelligence Matters when we talk with Dennis McDonough, a lifer in the Obama White House, the first four years working on the National Security Council staff, where I worked with him daily, to the last four years where he served as Chief of Staff. We'll learn the secret to his success, worrying about other people, thinking constantly about how bringing people together to do what's best for the president and for the country. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. As one goes through life, you meet a ton of people. Vast, vast majority of those are um, good, well-meaning people. A lot of positive adjectives that you can put on that. But every once in a while, you meet a truly remarkable person. And one of those few is the person sitting across the table from me right now, Dennis McDonough. Dennis was um, President Obama's deputy national security advisor for most of the first term and was President Obama's longest serving chief of staff virtually the entire second term. 
Um, he was a lifer um, for President Obama. So, Dennis, I'm uh, thrilled that you're here. I feel the exact same way, Michael, about you. It's been one of the great blessings to, of this crazy eight years was to get to work with you. Oh, thank you. So you were um, you were born in Stillwater, Minnesota, one of 11 children. Where did you fall in that? I'm the ninth. Ninth of 11. Of 11. Wow. Yeah. Devout Catholic parents? Yep. What was it like growing up in the McDonough household? You know, it's hard to know, right? Um What's remarkable about it, because all you know is what you know, but a couple of stories I think are interesting. One is that it was really important to my mom that we had dinner together every night, supper, we called it. So we had supper together every night, and that was mayhem. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you every night there was at least one glass of spilled milk spilt, or one glass of milk spilled. Just one? Just, well, at least one. (laughs) At least one? Yeah. And my mom had an uncanny ability to just let it happen. We Obviously, we had to clean it up, but she had prepared the supper. She was sitting down. That was her time. You know, she worked nights as a nurse. So she worked all night, slept what little she could when we were at school. My dad got home to work. We'd have supper together. So the importance of that institution, really, the institution of nightly supper in the midst of this mayhem, I think is a good symbol of the way we grew up. Did the future White House chief of staff have a leadership role in this mayhem? No. Or, or was no. just participating in it? <laughs> I was just a participant. <laughs> sometimes a catalyst, you know, yeah. uh, sometimes on the receiving end. Yeah. But, you know, there was seating at our table. There actually one, there's a big long bench around the table on one side, which was a converted pew from the Catholic mm, Church, mm. fitting, I guess. And then there was chairs on two other sides. And when you graduated to a chair, you know, it was a big deal. What was it like growing up in Stillwater in the 1970s? Stillwater's a cool little town. It's a town right on the border with Wisconsin, right on the St. Croix River. And in a lot of ways, it's, I think, what a lot of us look back on as a town where, you know, we didn't lock our doors at night. Summers were largely spent getting ourselves to different events. Little League, you know, you ride your own bike to Little League. Now we drive our kids right. dozens of miles right. to Little right. League. But it, it had begun then to become what it is now, which is really um, a community where people who work in the Twin Cities live. So people How drive into... It? It's about 15, 20 miles into downtown St. Paul and then another 10 miles into downtown Minneapolis. So it's a place where people could easily commute into the cities. And so now it's a, I guess you call that a bedroom community, but it's a, it's a cool place. And, you know, we grew up right across the street from... The Catholic Church, St. Michael's, and St. Mike's School. When my parents moved there in 1966 from Boston, my mom and dad are from Boston, and my mom still talks like she's from Boston, which, which was to endless amount of interest for my friends to listen to my mom speak. But it was really important when my mom and dad moved there in 1966 to my mom had uh, one requirement, which is that the house be close to the church and close to the school. And so we literally grew up across the street from St. Mike's, and, and that's where we've been since. So what... What values did you take away from your parents and growing up in the Midwest? You know, there's a good story. My brother Pat, I I don't know if this is true or not. I now believe it to be true. But my brother Pat is two brothers older than me. So he's about 51, 52 now. That's an estimation because I don't know exactly. (laughs) One of those intelligence community estimations. Yeah, exactly. I have high confidence. (laughs) I have high confidence it's in the zone. He was coming home from kindergarten getting hassled by a group of kids up the street. And he, you know, told my mom about that. And he was, as I remember it, bothered by that. My mom said, well, what are you bothered about? You know, you've got 10 brothers and sisters. So she basically told all of us that we had to meet my brother the next day when he was walking home from school. And I was, you know, it's just a little twerp, right? 
And all of a sudden, this big pack of kids walking together, all of his brothers and sisters, and he wasn't getting hassled anymore, which I thought was something interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, this is an important lesson that my mom always— For foreign policy and national security. Yeah, <laughs> which is like their strength in numbers, yeah. and you got to get each other's backs. Yeah. Something about multilateralism there. Yeah, some about—yeah, and uh, burden-sharing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so— I don't know that that's particular about growing up in Stillwater. I think that's particular growing up with my mom, who is a remarkable person. But, you know, growing up in Stillwater, there, you know, it's, a, it's interesting. There's, like any small town, I guess, in the Midwest, there's, I still remember, memorials to guys who went away to World War II, World War One, World War Two. Our high school football stadium was named for a Vietnam vet. So it's a small place, but one that recognized that it's fixed in a, in a larger world. So I always saw you in your day-to-day decision-making as somebody who had deeply held values, deeply held integrity. and But when you made decisions at the White House, did you actually think about the values and how to apply them, or was it just so inside of you that, that it was not conscious? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. In a lot of ways, I always saw my role in the White House as not necessarily that I was making decisions, that I was trying to tee up decisions for others to make. Now, I recognize that obviously we were making decisions all the time. But as a staff guy, and that's really what you are, surely when you're a national security advisor and also when you're chief of staff, you're really a staff person teeing up a decision for somebody else to make, in many cases, the president himself. And I attach great value to that. And I think that's what I often thought. I didn't know this when I came in, but by the time I'd spent some time in the White House, I recognized that it was really important that I recognize my role as a staff guy, irrespective of how close I was to the president, which some people focus on, I think, overly. And so I thought it was really important that I, while I was there, and I think this comes from the way I grew up with 10 brothers and sisters, that I didn't let myself get in the way of the decision, but I rather used my roles to frame and shape the decision so that it was clear, crisp, and not freighted down by my ideology or anybody else's. So you go off to St. John's University. In fact, you have you have the swag I'm on. Wearing here. my colors. You're wearing the colors. You majored in history, Spanish. Played football on championship two championships, I think. Yeah. Um, played safety. Yep. Played in high school as well, right? Yep. What position did you play in high school? Also strong safety. I played a little quarterback when I was in tenth grade. And what did football teach you? You know, it's interesting. St. John's has a. I remember our coach at the time. We ran a five-two defense, which means just that you had five down linemen and two linebackers. And it was an entirely read defense, although by the time, a couple of years into it, we started to run more blitzes and stunts. But in the main, the defense that we ran was just a 5-2 read defense. And your job was to, if somebody was trying to block you, your job was to not let them block you where they wanted to move you, and you had a specific hole that you just had to stand in. Mm -hmm. So if the St. John's offense that we ran, and they ran for years, decades really, through several national championships, had a simple philosophy, which is if everybody was doing his job, the running back would be forced to run out of bounds. He might not even get tackled. There would just be nowhere for him to go, and he wouldn't gain any yardage. So I think that's an important lesson if you're running something like the National Security Council or even the White House staff well which is everybody's got a role to play. Nobody has to be an all-star. Nobody has to be the glory seeker. All you have to do is to do your job. Do your job. And if that's functioning well, it's going to mean that you've fulfilled your objective. Now, we didn't always do that. We won one game in the playoffs in 1989 against Simpson College of Iowa, and the running back at the time set the record for yards gained 
as a running back in all of NCAA history. Mm. I missed him three times in mm. one play. I missed, <laughs> so you I'm, recovered I missed twice. The, I missed the tackle three times. There's positive aspects so, of Right. So that's not to say it always works, and it's not to say I was very good, but it is to say that there's something to be said that when the team is functioning well, going to advance your yeah. objective. So we had a couple of CIA, NSC basketball games on the White House court. Yeah, I remember those. And, I remember and, who won those. And so do I. And it wasn't CIA. But what I remember is time after time after time, when you had an open shot or even an open layup, you would pass the ball to somebody else and let them finish the play. That really struck me as um, as a real leadership trait. Right? Well, that's because I didn't trust myself to make it. <laughs> no, I don't think so at all. <laughs> I think you uh, you were willing to let others have the glory. Yeah, well, that's I, what I think. I think it's just because I, I don't trust myself to to make it. When I played football, when I played basketball in high school, one of my coaches told me that they gave me five fouls for a reason. So let's just say I was more football player than basketball player. <laughs> okay, the history major is interesting to me because. The importance of history and understanding an issue is is critical. If you don't understand the history, you don't know why you are where you are, and you don't know what the path forward is. And I think you know Graham Allison at at the Kennedy School who believes this deeply um, and actually believes that the first time an issue becomes before the deputies committee or the principals committee that there, there should be a little session on what's the history of this. Could we have sold you on that idea? Definitely. So I'd say three things about this. One is I chose to be a history major in many ways the way I've chosen my job since, which is I chose to be a history major because I met a professor who happened to be teaching history who was really interesting. And that's not to say that I didn't love and don't love history and don't see the value in it, which is the purpose of your question. But oftentimes I've noticed that if you make a choice about a job based on the people you get to work with, I think you're going to be in a pretty good spot. And that was surely true with Ken Jones, a history teacher at St. John's. But Point two is I remember Tom Donlin, who was national security advisor when I was his deputy at the NSC, saying that the thing he thought was most important about his job is having an understanding of history. And he was a voracious reader, as the president was, and he read a lot of history. It's important. He uh, told me that he used to carry history books into the Oval Office. Yeah, and he'd have them, like, dog-eared and stuff like that. <laughs> of course he would. Because <laughs> so, he, nobody loves little drama like the Tom Donlin courtroom. But I'd say one last thing, which is I used to think a lot about the fact that that building where we get to go to work, got to go to work every day has seen it all. And the same is true of the Capitol. This country has done and seen amazing things. And it would be, I often thought, arrogant to think that any particular problem that we confronted was so unique that there weren't lessons to be drawn with how presidents and White House staffs had handled a question in the past wouldn't have some sort of guidepost or some sort of wisdom for us. And in fact, I think it's when you ignore that fact, namely that this has been done well in the past and there's something to learn from it, that you get into trouble. And I think I've said this before, but after 9-11, when I worked on the Hill, I think we handled some things in a way that we shouldn't have. Didn't follow regular order for certain debates on things like the AUMF, the 9-11 AUMF. At the end of the day, we probably would have gotten to the same point, Mm -hmm. but we would have had the country with us had we not negotiated that behind closed doors without public hearing and rushed it to the floor for the the vote we did. But History is really important for that reason, in my view, Michael. It is that. And, you know, I think it's not determinative, so I might argue around the edges with Graham. But I do think that grounding yourself in that brings the requisite humility in 
how you need to approach the question. You know, we used to do these memos for you guys. You know, we turn them around in 24 hours. Some of the most effective ones that we did, I thought, were the ones that provided the history on an issue, particularly when it came to you guys for the first time. Yes. There was a real receptivity to those. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to fix this in And I think this is also true of how President Obama viewed governance, which is that there's no kind of knockout punch, that a particular problem develops over time. And we needed to make sure that we had the strategic focus and the attention to execution and the attention to the word stick-to-itiveness, I guess, sticking to it over time, that we'd rub the problem out over time the same way it developed over time. Mm -hmm. And so when you guys would write these pieces, you'd make that very clear, right? Which is that this has developed over time. North Korean leaders' understanding of us has developed over time. And that's important as we think about how we do do that. So then you graduate and you go off to Latin America. Yeah. You think you do some teaching. Why did you do that? Where'd you go and what did you learn? So I went to Belize in Central America and I taught in a high school in, in Western Belize on the Guatemalan border. And I went back to that region to ask my wife to marry me about seven years mm-hmm. later, which is great. I did it because I wanted to give myself some, a little bit of perspective to figure out what I wanted to do after college. I thought that could do it from down there. I also did it because I made a series of bad choices. I really thought I wanted to be a lawyer and I was supposed Everybody to- Everybody else was around that sit room table. They were. They were. They were. And they'd oftentimes, you know, tell you how much they could bill out at before they came exactly. to the government. Yeah. I always thought to myself, oh my God, it wouldn't be worth half that. Anyway, just teasing. And I was supposed to set aside, I did set aside time to study for the LSAT my senior year of college. But it was after football season, and I was not as disciplined as I became in later years, so I, I didn't dedicate as much time to studying. So I quickly demonstrated through my LSAT that I didn't, wasn't going to get into the, the law schools, I hoped. So I also went to Belize because I, I knew I screwed up the LSAT. Mm-hmm. But what I learned there is those students in Belize had the British system of schooling, which is to say that kids would approach a decision point in basically the our equivalent of sixth or seventh grade where they'd take a test. They'd either test into a standard high school or test into a vocational school. And then they'd be into a path for their life's work. And there are a lot of kids that if they didn't test into one of those two schools, had no option. So mm-hmm. St. John's University, where I went, teamed up with some Catholic leaders down there to set up a school for kids who didn't test into either option. That school is now fully accredited. Kids now okay. go from there to college. It's a great thing. But it also, I think, taught me that you can't cast a lot on somebody when that kid is sure. 12 or 13 years old. I wouldn't be sitting here if that was the case. Are you kidding? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So you come back from Latin America and you go to grad school at Georgetown yep. and then you end up as a as a foreign policy guy on the Hill. Yeah. First for the Foreign Affairs Committee. Yeah. Then for Senator Daschle. Yeah. Senator Salazar. Yeah. And then a new senator named Barack Obama. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you met him? I do. I do. It was uh, shortly after he was elected and Pete Rouse was his chief of staff. Pete Rouse had been Senator Daschle's chief of staff. So he was my boss until uh, Senator Daschle lost in that fateful election in 2004. Senator Daschle lost in South Dakota. That was the year President Bush was reelected. And it was a grim year for Democrats, but there were two very interesting bright spots, Ken Salazar and Barack Obama. I went to work 
with Ken Salazar to get him up and running. And Pete Rouse was working with Barack Obama. So I got to know Senator-elect Obama through Pete. And I remember when I met him down in those transition offices in the basement of uh, one of the Senate offices buildings. I think it was Dirksen at the time. And did some work with him and Pete. And I was impressed by him. You know, you can't help but be impressed yes, by him. Yes, absolutely. And I was a little bit daunted by him. He's obviously smart got guy. a very smart guy. <laughs> yeah. Ken Salazar, same. And seemed to be really interested in these questions, that is to say, national security questions. And Pete and I helped Senator-elect Obama get to know Mark Lippert, who mm -hmm. ends up going mm -hmm. to work for him in the Senate office. Mark and I are good friends. And Mark works with Senator Obama in the Senate office. Then Mark's a Navy reservist, got called up to Iraq. Iraq. Right. Yeah. And when right. he did that, I had, by that time, done my work with Senator Salazar, got him up and running, and went downtown to one of the think tanks, CAP. And when Mark left, then I did some work for Senator Elect or for then Senator Obama, but also for the campaign. So what was his worldview when he first came to Congress and how did you see that evolve over the years? That's an interesting question. It's interesting because in a lot of ways, what you see is what you get about President Obama. I think people have some for a lot of different reasons, I think tried to shroud it in some sort of mystery or complexity. But he, in his books, I think, wrote a lot about how he sees the world. And I talk about it maybe in three three important things. One is he saw how his father, who was a very intelligent guy, saw what happened to his father when he went home to Kenya after school in the U.S. And in Dreams of My Father, mm -hmm. wrote about what his father went through, recognized that this the opportunity that I think he had come to, then Senator Obama had come to enjoy in this country was not obvious in Kenya. And I think that sharpened his instinct to work. Some sense that we had a responsibility in the world to... Some sense that we had a responsibility, but some sense, too, that the United States is unique in creating opportunity. And he, therefore, wanted to make the most of it, which... I think is one of the reasons why a relatively young man then decides to run for president of the United States, which is my second point, which is that I think he has a particular view about American exceptionalism. He's talked about this a lot, but it's an exceptional country on the face of the earth where a person who grew up the way he did can become president of the United States. And that's a pretty powerful perspective that I think does set the United States apart. And then third is um, he's a guy who saw a lot of the world as, you, as he's grown up, and it's a big world. We were just talking about it the other day. We were just in Asia, my wife and kids and I. You can't be in Asia and not realize that this is a huge planet. Yeah. And that means we have a lot of interests. We have a unique role, but we also have to be mindful of the fact that things that are on our minds are not on the minds of those thousands and thousands of people that are passing through the Bangkok International Airport right. every day. Chicago O'Hare gets busy. No, it's a big airport. Yeah. The Bangkok International Airport, I was struck every minute I was there. We were in and out of that thing over the course of three and a half weeks recently. Every time we were there, it was packed. And that's in Thailand. That's not near the biggest country in the region. Mm -hmm. So he had a unique perspective then as well. So those are three, three things I'd say, Michael. I hope those are responsive. So you mentioned you served on the campaign 2008. Were you on the policy side of it? I was. I did a little bit with Secretary Clinton's campaign, and I noticed this tension between the policy side and the political side. Trans-Pacific Partnership is one of Pretty the places example, that, yeah. that played out. How did you see that tension in the campaign? And does the political side always win? How does that work out? The way I saw it, I mean, you know, for example, some of the places where it play out in 2008 are in and around questions about Iraq, questions about budgeting, defense budgeting, it's very crowded. Democratic primary 
2008. And a real animating factor in that whole campaign, but particularly in the Democratic nomination process, is Iraq. But I saw my role the same in every job, Michael, as I saw it on that one, which is I, tensions. I don't, I'm not afraid of tension. Tensions I've seen that. <laughs> tension's a good thing. I think I've actually experienced that. <laughs> tension's a good thing. It's in the abrasion and uh, back and forth in the debate that comes from tension that you get good ideas and that you sharpen your ideas. So I think that's what a guy like David Plouffe or David Axelrod or somebody like Valerie Jarrett would ask for as a matter of course. But here's what I do know. That's what President Obama expected. Look, I remember very interesting things. I remember we sat down. Well, he sat, President Obama sat down with Michael Gordon at the New York Times on Iraq. And, you know, President Obama had a, a particular view. It was controversial to some, including potentially to Michael Gordon going into the interview. But it struck me at the end of the interview that Michael Gordon thought, you know what, I mean, I agree with this. But you know what, this is a serious piece of business. And it's a serious piece of business because President Obama was a serious person. And I think we had a policy operation that was serious and that we wanted to make sure that we treated those issues with the attention and seriousness they deserve. I don't know if you remember this. We had a walk once on the South Lawn, you and I. And I remember. I asked you, to what extent does politics play in the making of foreign policy? Do you remember what you said? I hope I remember what I said, but why don't you tell me to make sure? You said, and this is, I saw the first half of this. I didn't see the second half from my perch yep. at CIA. But the first half was... No, it really doesn't, right? We really try to decide what is the best thing for the country here. But once we do that, then you fully employ politics to get that that piece that you want. Does that resonate with you? General Jones used to have a saying about the National Security Council, which I thought was interesting. He said, nothing about you without you, which is to say we're not going to make a decision about a national security interest that an agency has a view on or an equity in without them at the table. And also that this is the one and the only meeting on this issue, mm -hmm. which is to say we're not going to have a meeting on Iraq down in the Situation Room and then go up into the Oval Office, have Pluff and Joel Benenson and David Axelrod come in with all the polling and say, well, is this going to work? That's point one, which is it, it was very important to the president that national security decisions were informed debated, discussed, and decided in the city. Now, a lot of people say, okay, so how, how do you then factor in the politics? Because it's a reasonable question. Absolutely. This is why the next thing is more, so important, which is Jim Jones, Tom Donilon, Susan Rice, all had a National Security Council that had the chief of staff of the White House at the table in the National, in the national Security Council. And when I was chief of staff, I thought it was important that I gave voice to those issues at the table, not because I thought they should decide them, but because everybody operates right. in that context. Right. But by no means is that a deciding factor, but it's an important voice. Lastly, politics, I define politics as the way you get policy done. So once the, that decision is made, you absolutely have to use Game on. Game on. You game have to on. use every political argument, avenue, instinct, alliance, coalition that you have to make sure what the president has decided is implemented and executed smartly. So, Dennis, maybe the question of our time. You were undoubtedly in Chicago on election night. The country was already divided, certainly politically and also in other ways that maybe we didn't fully understand then. And president-elect gives this remarkable speech. And there's great hope in the country that he's going to be able to be the unifier. And here we are nine, ten years later, and we're still divided. 
what's your sense for why we are where we are as a nation and what is it going to take to get us to where we need to be? I, I was struck just yesterday, Senator Corker announced his departure from the Senate at the end of his term. And he said the biggest threat to the United States is not North yeah. Korea or Iran or Russia or China. It's us. Yeah. And this is what he was talking about. What's your sense about why, we, why we're here? Yeah, I'm struck, Michael, that experiences in this country are increasingly divided, isolated. There's a separate trend, which is, I think, the atomization of individuals from one another. And I think that grows out of technology, to be perfectly honest with you. You can spend all day in some kind of virtual reality that you create because you're checking your phone. And so that's part of it. But I don't think that's the biggest part of it. The biggest part of it is right now you can choose to dramatically isolate yourself from people of opposing or different views. You choose the church you go to, you choose the neighborhood you live in, you choose a newspaper you get, if you even get a newspaper. You construct the news feed you want on your social media. And by the way, social media providers then construct the news that they want you to read. Right. And sometimes, so sometimes foreign governments help with that. They sure do. <laughs> and those foreign governments, foreign intelligence services are pushing pushing into a trend that we're bringing onto ourselves. Right. And so the consumer in this country has to be more discerning to say, you know what? I don't want to live in that. I don't want to live in that society. So if it's by virtue of where you choose to live, where you choose to work, where you choose to worship, hopefully we'll get back to some sense of common purpose. And that's going to be hard because all the trends push you to separate purpose. That's true geographically. Right. It's true where you and I grew up right. in Ohio right. or right. small town Minnesota. Right. And I refuse to believe that's going to end up being destiny. But, you know, all the economic and sociological data on this, Raj Chetty's analyses that suggest one of the deciding factors on your economic and educational performance is where you're born. We have to say to ourselves, I refuse to accept that. Right. And it undercuts that sense of opportunity that President Obama feels so strongly about. And that not only you feel so strongly about, but he ma he manifestly lived. And, you know, this is why he's doing what he's doing at the foundation and with the library and why he did so much of what he did when he was president is because he, he believes it does not have to be that way. Look, I think we have a great opportunity right now to use the technology that is driving us in a lot of ways to atomize or to bifurcate our society, to do the opposite. Basically, we're the country that is most often deploying automation and artificial intelligence. We deploy it more robustly than any other economy. Places where right now where we're deploying it are healthcare, finance, and the sky's the limit as to where right. else we do it. Right. There's a lot of discussion about whether the robots will take over people's jobs. I don't think that's right. As history suggests that what's going to likely happen is this technology is going to partner with humans and make humans more effective. But there's a transition. There's a transition. There's a There'll transition be dislocation. Period. So if we're attentive to the transition period, invest in people during that transition period, and we in ensure that technology doesn't continue to bifurcate us, but actually creates opportunity across the board. Those are all things we have to be intentional about, and we have to construct policies to ensure happen. If we do that, we can use that technology to get us back to a sense that, you know what, no matter where you live in this country, you get opportunity. I heard Warren Buffett say not long ago that he believes that capitalism is the greatest force for good that he's ever seen, but that he fears that if we don't take care of the people who are left behind— by this technology surge, that we're going to lose it. And so taking care of those people in this transition period is extraordinarily important. Yeah. 
and recognizing what does taking care of them mean? It means making sure that the money that we invest in education is actually giving people the skills they need to compete and making sure that when we're making investments in automation, we're focusing on the national interest in having all, all Americans have opportunity, not focusing solely on a quarter by quarter rush to the bottom line. And by the way, this worked pretty well in our country for the first 240 plus years. It's only this trend to dramatic increase in inequality, reduction in opportunity is that's the outlier. And we have to figure, figure that out. We then meet in Chicago during the transition. Yeah. And it's your first exposure to intelligence, which you then dealt with for the rest of your time in the White House. Yeah. Can you give folks a sense of what it's like to be the recipient of intelligence, how important it is, uh, strengths, even weaknesses? And I'll help you on the weakness front. Sandy Berger once said to me, you know what I really need is I need somebody in the intelligence community to tell me what I don't need to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember, uh, so I met you during the campaign we, the president took shortly after officially receiving the nomination. He took a brief, and I think you were head of the DI at that time. Yes. And he took a brief in Chicago, as the newly nominated president's candidates normally do. And then the Thursday after the election, he didn't take the PDB on the Wednesday morning, but he did take it, did take yeah. it on Thursday morning. I remember that day. I remember that it wasn't, day. It wasn't a golden start for the intelligence community. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to dwell on that. No, but we don't. I think there's a great advantage to the way the presidential daily brief has evolved, which is you get it early in the morning. So it provides very, very helpful framing information. It's kind of as current as you can make it because it's basically a product that is worked and finalized literally overnight. And it's, it's brought to you by people who are then working all night to prepare that briefing, to respond to your questions. And so it ends up being a little bit like a framing document for your day. And that's an important thing. And its greatest strength is when it recognizes that it's framing for the day, but that it's not just an inbox question, that it's not how do we get the most hot recent right. intelligence into the president, but how is this informing the ongoing policy debates right. that the president's a participant in? And how is it focused not on near-term tactical questions, but how is it for informing the ongoing strategic view? I saw one of my roles in deputies' meetings as going back to the building and tasking out pieces because I knew where the policy discussion was, where the arc of that discussion was. It was. I saw that as a big responsibility. I think that's a huge value add because if you know how this works, right? I mean, this is the way it works for any human. You don't just think about a decision right before you're going to make it, right? right. No family thinking. Right, 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 right. You're constantly thinking, oh, you know, right. what am I going to do about X question? How are we going to handle this question of a big upcoming purchase of a car or whatever? You're not just saying, okay, we're going to set aside the hour before the decision and get to the bottom line, then we'll make the decision. That's the way policymaking works in the White House, and the PDB then ends up being a very informative document. I'm using that as kind of shorthand, Mike, Michael, yep. for your question about yep. what does it feel like to get that intelligence. So the first is it can be an extremely useful document that you set aside in a day. You know, you set aside 
between when I'd read it between like a half an hour and 45 minutes to sit with your briefer in the morning. And then again, you said then we'd sit with the president. That ends up being time where you're just stopping thinking and considering how this stuff fits into the larger flow of information and, and discussion. I think that's extraordinarily valuable. The second is, and this is why it's so important that you, you interact with the briefers, is you end up having an ongoing conversation over the course of a week, a month, a year, eight years on certain questions we're constantly going back and forth on. And I think that's useful also for the Intel community to have very real-time feedback from policymakers to say, this is interesting, but what about X? And so that's the second thing, which is it ends up becoming a communication piece. It's not that document that comes in that day. It's an ongoing living right, back right. and forth. It's not one piece that changed the world. Right. It's the discussion. Third thing is, that, look, it freaks you out. <laughs> Scary stuff. Yeah. And with that comes a high degree of responsibility. And I often thought it was my role as the president's chief of staff, my last role when I saw something in the document, to make sure that either in the briefing or going into the briefing, coming out of the briefing, we had a very clear set of steps that we were taking, having learned what we learned. And so it is in a very important way to make the government responsive to the experts in the IC who are watching what's happening in the world. Yeah, that's a fantastic perspective. At the same time, really important that policymakers understand that there's not perfect certainty here. No. That the intelligence community is looking at issues that our adversaries are actually trying to hide from us. Yeah. And so you can make the wrong call. It's easier for the intelligence community for that reason to make the wrong call than maybe for the Department of Treasury to make the wrong call. So it's really important that people understand that. Totally. I mean, this this raises... I've never, I've never run into a human source of the Central Intelligence Agency who hasn't lied right. to the Central Intelligence Agency. Right, right. Well, so this, this raises a very interesting question, right, which is a, a fundamentally important skill of policymakers and intelligence analysts alike, which is risk tolerance, risk aversion, right-sizing risk. Mm -hmm. You can spend your whole life trying to mitigate away risk, but that's going to crowd out everything else you want to do. Right. And no, no risk, no gain. No risk, no gain. And so... You, you, guys, you guys blitzed on that football team. Yeah, that's why all of a sudden, you know, that's great. The 5-2 defense is great and everything. But then Ricky, well, I forget what his name was. I think it was Ricky Gales. <laughs> God, that guy just crushed me. It was terrible. And, you know, so you can't, you can't live your life that way. So the interesting thing is all the way along the line, people are making decisions about whether this merits attention. If it merits attention, then the policymaker owes it back to say, okay, it merits attention. Here's the attention it's gonna, we're going to give to it. So... A year, year and a half as the head of strategic communications for the NSC, deputy national security advisor, White House chief of staff, eight years of involvement in national security, foreign policy. What's Dennis McDonough's view of America's role in the world? My view of America's role in the world is that both by example and by action, we demonstrate that it's possible for there to be a system, not just in the United States, but globally that maximize opportunity for individuals. That when we're doing things best, we're showing individuals in countries, but also leaders in countries, that there's not a fixed amount of opportunity in this country. I think the biggest change of worldview in the last... Not zero sum. It's not zero sum. It's not at all. 
you add opportunity. When we're expanding an opportunity in this country, it's not coming. I'm not my growth and opportunity is not coming at your loss. In fact, you can add to it. And if you think about who's added to global opportunity since in modern history, more than America, it's hard to imagine. Right. Isn't anybody. It's hard to imagine. And when all of a sudden, if we start to take a different view of that, then I think we lose a lot of not only the admiration that generations of Americans have earned for us, but we also then lose a lot of the moral suasion that we have that creates space for us and for our citizens, our businesses, our universities, our institutions. But then it also gives room to our competitors. Right. Guess what? We have a better system than the Chinese. Right. And we've demonstrated that time again. One of the great things to remember, and I don't think this gets gets said enough, is that we actually have allies and partners, and the Chinese and the Russians don't, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And and you know what? Maintaining alliances and partnerships is hard. It's hard work. It also means trimming your sails on certain things. That's the fundamental bargain at the heart of Bretton Woods, mm-hmm. at the heart of the North Atlantic Charter, at the heart of all those monumental decisions that these very interesting people made right after World War II. And the biggest, most important players got to give them the most. Yeah. Look, it used to be that to the winner goes the spoils, right? Yeah. It's pretty remarkable what right. President Truman and his team do. Right. The world would be a different place if that had been our strategy. Be it a would, much it, different place. It would be a much worse place. There's no question about that. So then you um, do four years as chief of staff, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you started your career in 1996, becoming the White House chief of staff in 2013. So you went from young aide on the Hill to White House chief of staff in 17 years. That's a pretty remarkable <laughs> rise. I never thought about that. I haven't, no. So I'm sure there are young people looking at Dennis McDonough's career and say, how can I do that? <laughs> how can I mirror that? What advice would you give to somebody who wants to come into government and do well? My first job on Capitol Hill, I applied. I graduated from graduate school in May 1996. I met Kari at a graduation party we had at our house. Like instantly fall head over heels for her. I'm still an intern on Capitol at the time. Mm-hmm. I had applied for an opening because the guy I was working for was going back to school. So I applied for his job. Chief of staff calls me in and he says, I got good news and I got bad news. Now it's end of June. Like I'm out of money. Kari's got a good job, but I want to take her out on dates. So I need a job. <laughs> and he says, I got good news and I got bad news. I said, well, why don't you give me the bad news first? He says, well, bad news for you is we offered the job to somebody else. Mm. And I thought, well, that's bad news. And What's the good news? <laughs> what could possibly be the good news? And he said, well, the good news for you is you turned it down so you can have it if you want it. <laughs> that's great. And I was like, all right, well, that's kind of an auspicious start. But I look, I just told you I'm falling in love with this woman and I need a job, not only for that reason, but largely for that reason. So I took the job. So what does that tell you? One is that you got to get involved, you know. Two, you got to get lucky. Got to get lucky because you work with really interesting people and you got to choose that. Now I was choosing to work with Lee Hamilton there. Mm-hmm. And Lee has been a great mentor and advocate for me ever since. Mike Van Dusen was the chief of staff. I, I wouldn't have act, exactly messaged it the way he did, mm-hmm. but he also looked out for me. Choose to get involved with people who are interesting and who you want to emulate and learn something from and who are in the arena. Third is, look, I would not be cautious about getting involved in partisan politics. Follow your heart, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Why are you a Democrat? That's a good question. I'm a Democrat because, you know, there's this priest at St. John's who used to say that his mother used to say to him, you know what, you're Irish, you know what that means? It means you're Catholic and you're a Democrat. (laughs) My parents never taught it to us that way. I'm a Democrat because I believe that Democrats fashioned a worldview that won the Cold War. 
And it's not uncontroversial, and I'm sure I'll hear from our conservative friends mm-hmm. that I'm full of malarkey, but... Won't be the uh, first time. No, that's true. <laughs> and I'll hold my own, I hope. But President Truman set up the system that shaped the greatest expansion of opportunity in the world and in America, and arguably in history. And, and arguably benefited us. Yes. And I take great pride in that as a Democrat. So I'm a Democrat because on national security issues, I think we've got the better ideas, and we have had them. Now, there's a whole host of other things that growing up in a very devoutly Catholic family with a bunch of social justice brothers and sisters that I'm sure are are in there. But I came to this stuff through the national security side of the house, and and I'm really proud of our history and tradition as Democrats. So, Dennis, two final questions. The first is, as as White House Chief of Staff, you, you have a view of the entire executive branch, right, second only to the president. What would you want Americans to know about their government? There's all sorts of views out there, right? Misperceptions. What would you want them to know about their government? I'd want them to know that these are people. The government is made up uh, not of faceless bureaucrats, but of really interesting people who have decided to get into the jobs that they're in because they love the country that we all love. And many of them are doing jobs. Many of them are doing this service even though they could be much more handsomely remunerated doing something else. So they're attracted to this not for the monetary gain, but rather for the mission. And the mission is— No matter where they are, right? Whether no they're at the that, Defense Department or Health and Human Services or Treasury park or rangers, Labor. Or, secret Service agents, Housing and Urban Development staff. And I can't tell you how many times I saw people staying late, doing extra work, not wanting to do it for some kind of credit, but because they thought that there was, they're working an extra hour and make things a little bit better for their fellow Americans. And when you get to meet these people, it is the thing I miss. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the only thing I miss about government, about being outside the government, which is to be able to go to work every day with these remarkable public servants. Many of whom, by the way, who you spend your life working with, who do it not only without regard for public acknowledgement, but deliberately without any public acknowledgement. And they do it at some considerable, not just loss of remuneration that they might get somewhere else, but at a huge personal risk. Absolutely. And I'll I'll tell you, it's a profound, very powerful stuff. It's a profound and powerful thing to be part of that, even just for some short period, the short period we were part of it. And I'll tell you, every day I think about it, every day I miss it, and every day I'm grateful for it. And it's, by the way, unique in the world, by the way. It's like so much about this country, it's unique. So that takes us actually to the last question. You know, Washington, D.C. is a pretty pretty small place. And it's not six degrees of separation in Washington, D.C. It's like two. So there's a, a friend of your daughter's who was recently heard to say, you know, Mr. McDonough used to work all the time, and now he doesn't seem to work at all. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, what's next for you? Your public service, in my mind, can't be over. You have so much to give. How are you thinking about the future? I'll tell a quick story, and then I'll answer that question. Shortly after I met you, in Chicago, or I guess this is probably the second time I was with you because this wasn't during the campaign. This was after the election. I came back to, to Maryland and we went to mass on a Sunday morning and we're walking into mass and here's this guy sitting on a bench outside of Holy Trinity taking a call. And it's you. And here I am. I, I knew about you. George Bush's PDB briefer was with President Bush on the morning of 9-11. Highly decorated officer. And here it turns out we're going to the same church. What struck me then is you don't really know anything about anybody from the newspaper, (laughs) and you're never that far from one another. 
which leads me to my point here too, which is there's no knockout punches in Washington, D.C. Everybody acts like there are and they treat each other like shit and forget that they're dignified people made in the image of God. And we should start treating each other with a little bit of respect. And then when the country sees that, by the way, I think they'll start to recognize mm-hmm. that. And you should do it if for no other reason than you don't know who you're going to run into right. at mass. Right. That's, that's <laughs> So that's point one. <laughs> Great. Point two is I don't know what the future will bring in terms of government service. I would, but what I, I continue to be very focused on public service in two ways. One is I have religion about this idea of opportunity, particularly that technology, while it currently appears, is bifurcating opportunity, creating a lot of opportunity for relatively few and crowding out and complicating life for many. I think that's not, that's, it needn't be that way. And as we get into this artificial intelligence revolution, we can actually use that technology to increase opportunity for all American workers. So I'm going to continue to work on that. And the second is, look, I I have uh, four grandparents who came to this country. My grandpa McDonough was actually born in Pittsburgh. His parents died, so he went back to Ireland and then came back to the United States. So all four of our... He'd have to get a social media check now. Yeah, he would. He would. <laughs> but it'd probably be written in Gaelic, so I don't, I don't know how many Gaelic translators they have at DHS, but we'll find out. But I think if opportunity for work in the United States is the domestic issue of our day, refugees is the international issue of our day, and it would be a mistake if we turn our back on our historic role in being a leader on refugees. So I really hope to be able to work in those two places while also getting to my daughter's field hockey games. So that's not much. So that might be why people, since I'm kind of a loud cheer, cheerleader for my daughter. That's an incredibly important thing, as you know. <laughs> yeah, kind of a loud cheerleader for her. So I'm, my guess is there's a lot of people would wish I'd just shut yeah. up and go back to work. Dennis, thank you very much for taking Thanks the so time. Thanks so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. It's great. This. Thank you. That was Dennis McDonough. I'm Michael Morrell. Join us next week on Intelligence Matters. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.